Good luck. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh no, why did I say that? <laughs> okay, see ya. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. It's July 4th, Independence Day in the United States. We're broadcasting to you here on The Big Talker, 1067 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, every single Saturday at 10 in the morning. Those of you who are starting your celebrations now, hello, Consumer Choice Radio. I'm one half of your hosting uh, duo here, Yael Asoski. I'm broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria. And I am David Clement, broadcasting to you from Toronto, Ontario. I uh, also have to give uh, our Canadian listeners a happy belated Canada Day, uh, which is, for, for Americans who may not know, July 1st is Canada's Independence Day. Um, it does not come with the, um, the story of fighting for independence. Canadians politely asked for it, and we're kindly granted it um but yes it's a it's a big week for celebrations if you like fireworks and drinking beer and enjoying the outside uh these yeah these are all the good things in life and that's what makes consumer choice uh, one of the greatest operating principles for everyone out there um i think um for the french speakers it's uh, you also say jour de la confédération so they celebrate confederation day uh, which is like a strange, like passive-aggressive uh, holiday. It sounds like, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, a little, a little bit, a little bit. It's not quite as uh, celebrated in Quebec as that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, guys, welcome to the program. If uh, you are listening on the radio, you can always go and check out all of our notes and videos on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. You can also listen to the podcast version of the program. You can find that in the iTunes store on Apple. Uh, you can find that in Overcast, uh, whatever podcast app you use. Um, it is a holiday weekend. So, David, I figured it'd be a kind of good opportunity to bring on a, an awesome guest. First off, uh, we have an interview with Bartley Madden. Uh, he is the author of the book Free to Choose Medicine. It's something that we've talked about in the past. What is consumer choice in the healthcare system? A lot of people have seen what's happened with COVID and talk of vaccines. I know that you've written about this, David. There's there's a lot out there. So we have an interview that we have now with Bart Madden. Uh, we'll try to cue this up here and uh, play that for all of you. Jamie, roll the clip. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 1067 FM. I'm very delighted to be able to interview our next guest. Bartley J. Madden is the author of the book Free to Choose Medicine. He's also author of the book Value Creation Principles and a host of other books on wealth, business, and the theory of the firm, which I uh, learned a lot in university about. So Bart, thanks so much for coming on the program. Great to be here. So I, we wanted to get you on because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's been happening in our new COVID era, but there's a lot of talk about medicine, about regulatory approvals, and there's a lot of questions about the role of government and the role of innovation in kind of our healthcare system and our pharmaceutical system. And it seems as if there's still a lot of room for good ideas out there. And uh, this plan that you've put out there, the book that you've written, uh, I think gives a very, very good idea. If you could sum it up for our audience, what is free to choose medicine if you had to do it in uh, just a, a quick elevator pitch? Well, the very quickest is to say that free to choose medicine brings consumer choice and competition into the FDA's uh, monopoly on access to new drugs. And the background is that, you know, we all want to live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. And achieving that requires a drugs to patient system that's controlled by the FDA to be efficient. And you ask yourself, what should be the goal of that system that we rely on? And common sense says it should be better drugs sooner at lower cost. Now the FDA is failing in achieving that, that goal. 
it takes 10 to 12 years to get a drug approved at a cost when you include the cost of failed drug trials of about two and a half billion dollars. And sky high prescription drug prices is one result. But there's, a, there's another terrible cost which never makes it on the nightly news. And that is when, when people have a, have a legitimate chance to save their life by access to a not yet approved uh, drug and they're denied that freedom. Now that results in an invisible graveyard. It's a humanitarian tragedy and it needs to be fixed. And a lot of this has to do with drugs that are sometimes approved in different countries and haven't yet been approved in the United States. Um, a lot of it uh, that's part of your book is also imagining an entire restructuring of the FDA and how these things kind of work. And if uh, there was sort of uh, a, another way to think about this, would it be just a, a more kind of global interconnectedness when it comes to approving medicines? Or is this just a, a much more innovative way to get those medicines right from the research laboratory and line straight to patients' hands? Well, it really does represent common sense. And I, I think uh, when you get into the details of free to choose medicine, we can talk about that in a second. But uh, the free to choose medicine book was a, an early version was translated into Japanese. And uh, so the ideas had a very, very significant impact on Japan's version of the FDA. And they said it made eminent sense to implement. So in 2014, Japan passed legislation implementing the principles of free to choose medicine. They call it conditional approval for regenerative medicine drugs, think stem cells. So we have a major developed country that has implemented these ideas. It's not an abstract kind of a concept. And there really are three parts to it. The first part is it'd be a, a free to choose track that does not disturb the FDA status quo clinical trial process. It runs in parallel. So after a drug has approved, has successfully passed phase one safety trials and one or more phase two efficacy trials, the drug developer could request for his drug to be put on the free to choose track. Now, you and your doctor would have up-to-date information to compare the not yet approved free to choose drug to FDA approved drugs. And that would be done internet access to a trade-off evaluation drug database. The acronym is TED, T-E-D-D. -D. So TED would, would tell you, you would know what the drug developers know. And you could make an informed decision with your doctor. And the third leg of free to choose medicine, I call it observational approval. If a drug on the free to choose track clearly uh, has superior performance with real world patients, then the FDA could be empowered to give it observational approval, which would expedite insurance reimbursement. So those are the three key parts. And I, I saw on uh, your website, um, one thing that you point to is that, you know, the average approval process for many new drugs uh, sometimes can be up to a decade and, and costs up to $3 billion, which is no chump change. And, uh, you know, a first time entrepreneur is not going to have that. He's going to have to do a lot of fundraising and may basically bring in capital from other businesses in order to do that. Um, when you're looking at uh, the free to choose medicine model in various countries, uh, we have heard a thing in the news about right to try. Um, that was something that was pushed um, sort of in the American legislative system and was championed by many institutions and organizations. Um, how is that similar or different from your plan, Free to Choose Medicine? Yeah, good question. Uh, right to try an actual practice does not work very well because it lacks incentives. Uh, first of all, drug developers know that the, the FDA does not like drug developers going around the FDA. So right to try, although it has a tremendous emotional appeal, 
and I'm, I'm all for, you know, freedom of choice. It didn't have all the details worked out that free to choose medicine has worked out. Uh, for example, the, with, with right to try, a drug developer uh, must supply that drug at, at, at the, the developer's cost. And the drug can be in very, very tight supply. Now you're talking about supplying a drug to terminally ill patients. Many of these patients are going to die after taking the right to try drug. So the drug developer has to seriously worry what further demands will the FDA put upon us if people are dying after taking our drug. So right to try lacks proper incentives. All of these problems are solved with uh, free to choose medicine. And you mentioned uh, innovation a moment ago. Think about this. You're a venture capitalist. And I come to you, I have the top scientific talent to, to develop an out-of-the-box breakthrough drug for a serious illness. Now, you say to yourself, okay, I provide the capital. Ten years from now, uh, with luck, we'll be in a phase three trial. What kind of statistical demands will the FDA put upon this company? Because it's radical out-of-the-box thinking. That is a high risk, low payoff kind of a investment. Now, with free to choose medicine, I come to you, I'm an entrepreneur, to say, I, I have a top scientific talent on my team. Now, we can get our drug on the free to choose track. In three years, we'll get people taking our drug. And if it performs and it's a breakthrough drug, the way our early results indicated it should be, we're in great shape. You're the venture capitalist. You say, in three years, I, I can make an enormous return on my investment if the scientific skill is there. It changes everything. One thing that you have mentioned in the book or materials around the book as well is that this is something that was allowed to patients at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And in the last couple of months, we have seen more of an openness towards a similar kind of model of free-to-choose medicine. Of course, um, it, it's not your full plan as endorsed by the uh, economics Nobel laureate Vernon Smith. Uh, however, we do see more of an openness. It seems as if the Overton window has now shifted and more people are, are kind of willing to point the finger at the FDA and point out the inefficiencies, the inefficacy. Um, do you think this is more of a time now to perhaps push this plan or at least discuss it? And do you view this as, as kind of the time? Unfortunately, it has to come, you know, in a, in a time of such uh, pain and hardship for many, but do you think this would be a time to definitely kind of push this plan? Uh, yes. And if you look at the history of the FDA, going back to the legislation in 1962, requiring randomized control trials, from 1962 to where we are today, there's been a relentless increase in the demands for clinical testing. And you ask yourself why. Now, you understand the FDA behavior this way. They are primarily motivated to avoid negative publicity from adverse side effects of approved drugs. Okay. So with that kind of a mentality, it's really deadly overcaution. They will always demand more and more uh, clinical testing because the earlier I mentioned the invisible graveyard of all these people who die silently because they've been denied, been denied freedom of choice. That doesn't hit the nightly news. Now, when there's political pressure in the early 1990s, the AIDS activists, marched on Washington saying, this is insane. We need early access. So the FDA caved for a little bit. Okay, now the same sort of a thing uh, right now with the uh, coronavirus. People are saying it's insane to go at a snail's pace on your usual mode of operation. So the FDA is under political pressure and they, they, they move in, in a politically astute direction. But what we need is this crisis will subside and we'll get back to business as usual. 
we, sh we should say business as usual is unacceptable. And we, we need freedom of choice so that we, we can voluntarily make up our own mind with our doctor, with, with TED data, relevant data in front of us, based on our, on our unique health conditions, our unique preferences for risk. Do I want to take an FDA-approved drug or do I want to use a free-to-choose drug based on the data available to us today? You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We're speaking with Bartley Madden. He's author of the books, Free to Choose Medicine and Value Creation Principles. Uh, Bart, a question that I had is, uh, I think many of us saw the movie Dallas Buyers Club some years ago uh, with Matthew McConaughey, and it kind of introduced this idea of going around the system when there's need to get a certain drug. Now that we have this uh, parallel track um, that, that has been approved in Japan based off of your plan, and that there is this kind of new demand uh, for drugs that be, can be approved rapidly, you know, have you had any conversations with people from public health, from FDA? Or is, is there more of a, an openness from people in, in certain institutions who perhaps would not have been open before uh, that are maybe thinking of implementing similar ideas? Yes, I, I've had good conversations with people that are involved with big data analytics. When you think about it, today's FDA originated in the early 1960s with technology available in that bygone era of the 1960s. Today we have the internet and people are motivated to build up their personal knowledge and to share data, all of which is an ideal hand and glove fit with free to choose medicine. I'll give you an example with Ted. Say you, say you have ALS or some MS, some serious disease, you can monitor with real-time data on the free-to-choose track, exactly what's happening to patients that are taking the free-to-choose drug. Now, TED will have treatment results, but in addition, it will have data on biomarkers and genetic data on patients that are taking the drug. So with big data analytics, we can, in real-time, isolate subgroups of patients that do extraordinarily well, or perhaps don't respond to the drug. And I can sit down with my doctor and say, am I in one of these subgroups that does extraordinarily well with this free to choose drug? So we're using modern technology, which uh, there's every reason to do that with big data analytics. Uh, there's a, a lot of criticisms that have come up in the last year, maybe two or three years, about the American health system and, uh, you know, as someone who advocates for more consumer choice in, in the system, that's not a surprise to many, though a lot of the criticisms come about because people say that, you know, our system is too complicated or it's too privatized. You know, you hear this a lot from the Democratic presidential candidates. I'm, I'm wondering is, you know, this plan and other opportunities to perhaps reform institutions like the FDA or our healthcare system is this going to rely on giving more room for innovation or is it going to be more room for government? Because it seems as if there's a lot of demand for the latter. Uh, there's a lot of demand if you listen to many debates or a lot of uh, journalists specifically who cover healthcare to say that we need a larger role for government when it comes to regulatory um, aspects of the healthcare sector. And there's not as much of an argument for innovation. Well, when given the chance, I think people will want transparency and comparison shopping or being able, to, right now, we cannot evaluate the FDA's regulatory process. What do we compare it against? So with Free to Choose Medicine, uh, we, we will have real live data on, on individuals, volunteers, who you know, make the choice of not using an approved drug, but using a not yet approved drug. And so we'll, we'll see results right in front of us. And then this is kind of a beachhead. We're not tearing up the FDA. It's you maintain the FDA, you just have a competitive alternative. And when we talk about prices, everyone knows 
that the uh, the prices for healthcare are are straight up. They go up every year. What's what's the one part of healthcare where the inflation-adjusted prices are actually going down? Cosmetic surgery. Why? Consumer choice and competition. Oh, I hate consumer choice. Anytime that's inserted in that, and I, I didn't know that actually that you had cosmetic surgery uh, prices going down from. Much of the reporting, you would assume everything is just shooting through the roof, right? Right. Hmm. That's that's crazy. I think uh, you know there's a lot to learn here, so I'll definitely point uh, all of our listeners over to your website. Uh, Bart, is there anything else that uh, you're working on that you would like to point our audience to, or how can people follow your work? Yeah, there's a website, www.freetochoosemedicine.com, which is up to date and. Uh, they've just posted a, a new article. The, the prestigious journal Science uh, in 2019 had an article highly critical of free to choose medicine and my personal role in in Japan implementing their version of that. So, as you might expect, I wrote a reply, and uh, Science chose not to publish it but it was immediately accepted in a journal called Econ Journal Watch. And I, I, I reply to those criticisms and I would encourage people uh, to read that article. It's easy to find. You Google three words, science, FDA, liberalization, and it'll, it'll get you to that article. Wonderful, Bart. And we'll also link to it in all of our materials to make sure that all of our listeners and viewers can see that. So uh, we've been speaking with Bart Madden here on Consumer Choice Radio. His books are Free to Choose Medicine, Value Creation Principles, and a host of other books on wealth, business, and the theory of the firm. Thank you so much, Bart, for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. here on Consumer Choice Radio. We just heard the interview with Bart Madden. A lot uh, of interesting nuggets in there. Definitely, I would recommend you guys check out the website. Go and check out the article that Bart was discussing that uh, Science Magazine did not want to accept, or the journal. Um, so, yeah, great stuff. Very interesting. Um, I guess these are the kinds of ideas that we need right now. Um, the pandemic stuff is getting a bit crazy. It's something that was in, you know, in the very beginning, David, when we started the program was kind of there, started up in China. We already went through it once and now it's kind of like, uh, I guess, is this considered second wave? I don't, I can't follow all the time. I, I don't think it is. I think this is just part of the first wave. Um, and we're seeing all sorts of crazy headlines about numbers and, and Fauci has said that the, that the U.S. could reach 100,000 cases a day. Um, and some all sorts of really scary stuff, but there is um, there is some positive in in some of the numbers. Um, so cases are going up, but hospitalizations and ICU admissions are not. Yeah, that's what I um, I've, I think I heard in New York or something like that that there were only I don't know fifty to sixty people who are uh, hospitalized. Um, I don't yeah. know if that number is active. So what is the number that we should focus on? Because I think that's that's something that a lot of people who might be listening just have no clue. What number do we focus on to say we're going in a good direction, we're going in a bad direction? Because the problem think, now is there's no context, but there's plenty of data and information. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it has to be the hospitalizations and ICU numbers. Obviously, you have to keep in consideration total number of cases, but you got to remember that most jurisdictions are testing at double the rate they were a few months ago. And so just by virtue of doing that, you're going to actually start to pick up the asymptomatic cases and you're going to have start to report those figures. And then things start to, to look really, really scary. But the important thing here is we did all of these measures and these lockdowns and 
um, precautionary procedures to flatten the curve. And if hospital uh, hospital hospitalizations or ICU admissions are actually holding firm or are down, um, then we have in fact done what we sought out to do, which is flatten the curve. Um, so, so long as we keep those two numbers on the decline or flat, um, then I think we've successfully done our jobs in terms of trying to protect the public. Um, you can't get too, too scared of, of that total kind of nominal case number, uh, mostly because we're just, we're testing at a higher rate and we're picking up all of those um, asymptomatic cases now. Yeah. All right. So I'm looking at the numbers in the state of North Carolina. It just gives us a little bit of an idea. So we have completed tests. We have 942,000. Um, so that's, I guess, close to a tenth of the population of the state of North Carolina. Again, maybe people got multiple tests. So I don't, I don't know if they count like the people who are required to get tests all the time, like healthcare workers and stuff. And there are currently 901 uh, hospitalizations uh, due to COVID, apparently. Um, I think for, for 10 million, that's, that's, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if that's even a total number. Um, mm -hmm. no, it says 901 people were in the hospital with COVID-19 on July 1st. Okay. So we're actually in the hospital who on are, that yeah, day, not that total hospitalizations. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I think that's where you got to hammer down in terms of where the state is going is, is that number getting, is that number increasing? Is it holding steady? Um, if total caseload goes up, but hospitalization uh, holds steady, it shows you that you're picking up the asymptomatic cases. There's a lot of people who will test positive who don't know it or who have very, very mild symptoms or all of those things. So um, really important to keep that in mind because some of the some of the headlines I think have been like a little over the top in mm -hmm. terms of um, wait, from the media, you don't say <laughs> very, very apocalyptic headlines. And then you kind of dig into it and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, cases are going up. Uh, in some instances, people are doing things that they shouldn't or behaving stupidly, which is causing some spread. But at the same time, we're testing at a significantly higher rate. So yeah. gotta keep that in mind. Yeah. That's, I think that's good change. Um, it's going to be very difficult, obviously, July 4th, um, when this program is being broadcast here on the radio. A lot of people want to go out. A lot of people want to go tubing or they want to hang out at the ocean or want to hang out at the lake or hang out in the backyard and have a lot of friends over. I know we'll be doing that in, in Austria just because we're uh, we're a bit further along on this entire uh, coronavirus uh, terrible roller coaster ride. Um, so for us, we are able to gather in larger groups. Cases are practically done. I think there's like three guys left in the hospital or something. Um, again, we hope everybody gets better. And there is like a huge recovery rate as well. A lot of people are recovering much faster um, than they had previously. So that's good. But, uh, you know, this ain't the COVID show. It's the Consumer Choice Radio Show. So, David, you brought a couple of things here. Uh, there's a couple of things you've been working on in the background, uh, a couple yep. of things that we know is already happening and yeah, there might be not much action in terms of legislation this week because everybody's kind of mm -hmm. taking it slow, but there's still a lot of consumer issues that are super important. What you got on the docket? Well, you and I have chatted uh, quite frequently about AB5 in California and uh, how much of a, a job killer that, that uh, bill has been and, and why it needs to be repealed. Can you explain um, that for the, the audience if they hadn't heard that before, what AB5 is? Yes. So AB5 was a uh, was legislation that was passed in California that would basically make Uber drivers uh, or anyone really in the sharing economy, DoorDash, food delivery, all of those things, would turn them into employees. And it turned them into employees regardless, really, um, whether they wanted to or not a lot of people use these services as uh, an additional means of earning income. They do it on the side. They uh, do it outside of their nine to five. It's not something that they necessarily do for a full-time career. And the benefits of it is that it allows for them. It's, I mean, it's one of the only jobs that allows for them to work um, 
in a completely flexible scenario where they decide, okay, I'm going to go drive for two hours and then I'm going to log off or I'm going to do a full day or uh, July 4th is coming up. There are going to be a lot of people out there who need a ride home. Um, so I'm going to work the whole day and make a little bit of extra money. Some, um, in my opinion, misguided uh, California uh, legislator uh, just couldn't stand um, the the thought of um, people being able to operate their businesses in this way and essentially act as contractors. And this bill threatens um, the the jobs essentially of all of these independent contractors um, and threatens the availability of rideshare and food delivery services. So uh, very excited that um, that the Consumer Choice Center has actually joined a coalition of groups uh, fighting against AB5 in California. Um, and it is a it is a diverse group, um, which I'm sure we will get into, um, and into why those groups are supporting uh, and kind of standing next to us. But very excited that we are um, we are part of the group who are chipping away and trying to peel back this silly legislation. Yeah, and this is uh, all talks about a brand new ballot initiative uh, that will be mm-hmm. put together in the fall. So. California, like many states, does have this kind of open ballot thing, and most states do allow these kind of ballot initiatives, um, but I think it's, the, it's a lot easier to get those passed just by signatures in places like California and Colorado. Uh, I know we've had them in Florida and North Carolina, but those, I believe, need to be proposed by the General Assembly. Um, so <laughs> one of them, by the way, David, that you would have liked was a uh, state constitutional right to hunt and fish. Ooh, this was cool. yeah, and I think that was voted. I think that was voted in the positive. This was uh, last, I believe it was last year. Um, so <laughs> yeah, the right to food. I like it. Yeah, the, I'm, the, I'm, I'm down for that. The right to hunt and fit. Uh, this one was it, it was in a couple of states. I think Virginia had it as well. And there, there's a couple okay. others. So yeah, what we're talking about now in California is the uh, California app-based drivers regulations initiative. It's an up or down vote, yes, no. Do you support the initiative to define rideshare as uh, independent contractors and adopt labor practices, blah, 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 specific to app-based drivers and companies? So you mentioned, you know, the big impact on people like Uber, Lyft drivers, DoorDash, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Um, But also think about musicians and think about people who want to be contractors if they're journalists or just generally in their lives. AB5 Mm -hmm. ruined that. And uh, the woman that we uh, played the clip on a couple of weeks ago, Assemblywoman Gonzalez, who is the spearhead of this, is just uh, wasting her time. I mean, she's basically just putting her face in cake on Twitter all day because everybody's pinging her saying, look what you've done. Look what you've done. Just people, all these these people announcing layoffs or, um, you know, these companies are moving out of California to Texas or uh, to Arizona. There's been so many of these headlines and she's just like fighting back. It's like, well, if they're not going to provide good jobs, they don't deserve to be in California. (laughs) Well, yeah. And this is the, this is the crux. It's like, well, so she sees driving, uh, let's say being food delivery as not a good job. So she wants to add in all of these extra costs to employing these food delivery drivers and in many instances, it just means that they reduce their footprint in a particular state or community. Uh, so consumers have fewer options and they have to offset those, um, those differences in those inflated costs by passing that on to consumers. So you have people who are paying more for less choice um, and really just trampling on the choices of drivers who want to operate in this way and appreciate the flexibility. Like you got to remember the reason why for the most part, a taxi driver drives around for eight hours a day or has an eight hour shift is because they are an employee. There are all sorts of regulations and, and, and things like that, that apply that require them to do that. Um, Uber in many, in many cases is the alternative that says, hey, we know that like life can be complicated or you, that you don't want to do this full time so you can do it at your behest and, and make a go at it um, when it suits you best. 
And I think what's really telling about the coalition that we are now part of is we have, it, it is just a cross section of society in every way. So you have seniors advocates who are opposing, um, opposing uh, parts of AB5 because it makes it harder for seniors to move around their communities. It makes it harder for them to get the various things that they need, let's say dinner. Um, we have all, almost all of the Chamber of Commerce from, uh, from California, or many of the big ones, um, who have uh, joined the coalition. We have uh, groups that represent uh, African Americans. I think there are like maybe 20 um, NAACP uh, chapters um, who are in support of, of the initiative that we've um, that we've joined. And then you also have, and this is where I think it, it is really telling, you also have um, you also have the Police Chiefs, Chiefs Association, the State Sheriffs Association, um, and some public safety and law enforcement groups. And so everyone is kind of coming together and saying, hey, no, no, this type of flexibility is good for the economy. It's good for public safety. Um, let's not ruin it with some heavy-handed legislation here. There's uh, one interesting one I see on here is fathers against drunk driving, uh, but I do not see mothers against drunk driving. So I think the moms uh, love AB5. The dads hate it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if mothers against drunk driving joined um, the, the coalition at some point. And I'm saying that because... Uh, when we were part of a similar campaign in British Columbia, uh, they were part of, of that coalition. And that just mostly comes down to the, I mean, the data just shows that the availability of these ride-sharing services significantly decreases in instances of impaired driving because it gives you a cheap way to get home rather than being an idiot and uh, driving while you're intoxicated. Awesome. We'll definitely link to that on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. You can find that on uh, all the different platforms that we have as well. And there'll be a lot more coming there. Uh, obviously, we are a part of this coalition and we'll be pushing this up until the fall. Uh, this is a super important topic. You might think, I'm not in California. I don't care. Uh, just wait. California is the bellwether for the entire country and sometimes the entire continent. And things that are passed in California uh, eventually do get spread across the entire country. We saw that with uh, everything related to the emissions from cars. You know, California has very strict laws on what emissions levels uh, particular things must have on your car. And those standards have now basically been nationalized because all the automakers are like, well, look, if we have to comply with this law in California, we're not just going to make a bunch of cars for California and a bunch of cars for 49 other states. We're just going to have to do it for everybody. And that's just kind of a de facto way that California with a huge population can kind of get its way. Um, so definitely continue following along. We'll have some more there. Uh, one other thing I definitely want to talk about, David, is um, now I, I have to go into full pitch mode here. Have you recently booked a flight? Have you canceled your flight or had your flight canceled on you? Have you tried to get your refund and not been successful? Call us today. This is the big thing that's happening with a lot of people, David. I know it's definitely happened to me and we've talked about it. The ability of people to get refunds on flights that either they've had to cancel because of travel restrictions or have been canceled on them, this is going to be a huge issue for the next couple of months. Uh, yeah. What is happening on this uh, from what you've seen in Canada or in other places? What is going on with this? Why are airlines uh, really trying to stick to consumers here? Why are people not allowed to get refunds on the stuff that they book? Yeah, it's brutal. Um, so Air Canada is not refunding flights that originated in Canada. Um, and they're, they're doing some similar things with U.S. customers for flights that did not, or that originated in the U.S. Um, yeah, they're offering you a voucher. Uh, but what good, <laughs> what good is a voucher? I mean, Take 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 uh, take a wedding for an example. So let's say you're you're flying to Vancouver for a wedding that got canceled. The wedding's not happening anymore. 
Um, you're on your unemployment benefits because you've lost your job because of COVID. You had a thousand dollar flight to Vancouver booked and you're thinking, oh, okay, well, that's a lot of money back. That's a, I'm going to need that refund to pay bills and to not take on debt and all of these things. And then the airline goes, oh, well, I know that it says in the contract that we have to offer you a refund, but we're not going to. Here's a voucher in case you want to fly at some point in the next year. And it's like, that's one, it's, there's a rule of law question here um, where, I mean, there are clear contractual obligations to, to issue refunds based on their own terms. Uh, but two, it's just a completely tone deaf um, response from these huge multinationals. Um, when the people who are applying for refunds are just ordinary people looking to get money back for a service that was never rendered. Um, and we'd never tolerate this from a restaurant. Like imagine you go to sit down at a restaurant and you order it and they make you pay in advance, but then they never bring you the food. And then they go, oh, okay, well, I mean, you can come back in like six months and use this voucher. Here's this voucher. Here's a gift card for your troubles. Yeah. I hope you appreciate it. It's like, no, I, I paid for something. You didn't give it to me. So I get my money back. That's how it's supposed to, um, to go. And it just raises questions of why we treat the airline sector as we do um, and the protections that they have from competition. I mean, in Canada, it's, this is true in the U.S., but it's even more true in Canada. Um, foreign ownership restrictions, the inability for airlines to, um, to, to fly domestic routes. So I use the example of should British Airways be able to go Vancouver, Toronto, London? Yeah, I think they should. Most people hear that and they're like, oh, they can't do that? No, because they can't go in between two domestic cities. Uh, my understanding is it's the same in the United States. Yeah, it's cabotage so I, laws. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You should be able, British Airways should be able to fly LA to Houston to London or Birmingham or wherever they're going to go. Um, it just would offer so much more choice for consumers flying domestically while also putting other parts of the world in reach as a result. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't know how many people want to go to Birmingham, but, uh, you're, you're definitely right. Um, one thing for, for that is in Australia, New Zealand, like they, this is pretty open. So they allow mostly these middle Eastern carriers, Emirates, uh, mm -hmm. Qatar, um, so if you're flying from Sydney and you're trying to go to, let's say, Dubai or something like that, they'll fly you Sydney and then you'll go to Melbourne, you'll pick some people up and then you'll make the full flight. And it's not a problem that, you know, it's an Emirates plane and not, you know, some Australian like Qantas or something. And I think that's that's exactly what a lot of people don't really think about is, yeah, these are private companies, but they're very beholden to uh, the countries that they're based in. You know, the, mm -hmm. because every single time that there's some financial crisis or some Corona, uh, Carol Baskins virus, you know, thing that comes out of nowhere, they go to the countries for the bailouts, you know, Lufthansa mm -hmm. in Germany, American Airlines yep. and all the rest in the U.S. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe this is actually keeping your most inefficient operations going when there could be awesome, great innovators who come in from... Yeah, they might be foreigners from Canada <laughs> or foreigners from some other country, and maybe they'll have a better product or service. You know, we just don't really have that because we seem to bail out the airline industry every 10 years, 10, 15 years. Yeah. That's probably accurate. Well, so, I mean, for, for Canada, it was post 9-11, post SARS, and it will now be post COVID. So you're looking at just a major upheaval of the industry every five to seven, five to eight years. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a nightmare. And the responses to this are just so silly because people will say, well, I mean, that means that uh, international carriers are going to come into Canada and, uh, and they're going to outcompete Air Canada uh, and offer cheaper rates. And I don't know if Air Canada is going to be able to compete. And it's like, hold on a second. You just admitted that Air Canada sucks. But also you just said, we're going to get cheaper rates. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to cost me $1,000 to fly across the country. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Um, and also it just raises the question, like, 
maybe something needs to change with that company if you're identifying that they can't compete. Yeah. Uh, and so let's focus on what those changes would be. I mean, another funny response from, from someone, because I, I, I posed the question on Twitter and got thousands and thousands of responses. And oh, Mr. Big, of, Mr. Big Shot here on the radio. <laughs> well, I, I, never th- I never thought that a tweet about Air Canada refunds would reach 30,000 people, but it did anyway. Um, so one, one gentleman, I said, should, should Air France be able to fly Toronto to Montreal, then to Paris? And he said, no. And he said, because that plane would be serviced by, um, I think his wording was low-income workers with no benefits. Uh, as, if, as if Air France and France is, is some third world country um, completely incapable of meeting modern, modern safety requirements. It was just like astounding to see otherwise intelligent people make just the most ridiculous arguments. And even if you believe that, then the assumption is, okay, it's better to deprive them of any opportunity than to give them the opportunity to make any kind of wage that I would consider low in my country. It's the same uh, with you know the argument about a lot of international companies that have operations or factories in countries like China or Thailand or Vietnam. It's like, well, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be allowing it. It's like, okay, so let's keep these people in poverty as long as possible. And that's somehow better for them, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it's actually kind of the same mentality of... of the legislator in California. It's like, if it's not a great job, then we should just eliminate them all. No jobs. If it's not a good beer, let's just legislate it out of existence. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I'm I'm looking at you, Labatt Blue, and I'm looking at you. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Bud Light. No. (laughs) So some crazy times in the airline space. Um, I can only assume that consumers everywhere are pretty much going through this, wanting to get refunds, trying to pay bills, and ugh, just such a headache. Yeah, I've had that with, uh, you know, on my end, my, my mother is supposed to go and fly to Lisbon, Portugal. Obviously, that was not going to happen. So I I actually, this is the first time I ever purchased um, tri- uh, trip insurance. I've never done that ever, um, but I actually did it this time for my mom and her friend just because... I actually don't know why. I don't know why I did. Luckily, I did, but took the insurance, paid for it, got on the phone, and this is with Air Canada, did the whole rigmarole, figuring out who to contact. You'd call in the morning as soon as they open up at like 7 o'clock, and you'd still have like a 45-minute wait time on the phone. And basically, if you were able to get through, I eventually was able to get a partial refund. Uh, Apparently, even if I do have this insurance... Um, they're not able to give back the full refund. They can only give a small part. And then for the rest, I need to claim that with the insurance. And then claiming it with the insurance, which the airline sold me, by the way. You know, I bought it at the same time that I hit click and add to cart. In order to get the insurance, I need to make a claim and I have to send everything by physical mail to a P.O. box including all of the receipts, including all the email correspondence that I've received uh, up until that point. And then once that is in, likely within 30 weeks, we'll get the claim paid out. <laughs> 30 this is, weeks. This is not a, a good product. It's not a good way of, of treating your customers. I can imagine if, you know, if this was like anything on Amazon or something, or I don't know what other types of uh, insurance there exist out there, but... It's not that difficult. Maybe I'm wrong and I haven't done too many insurance claims in the past, and I'm sure many of our listeners have dealt with uh, all kinds of hell in trying to get claims from insurance companies. But, yeah, not a good process for the consumer. Really not. It doesn't make you feel good. And, I mean, even auto insurance. uh, So, like, I filed a claim with my auto insurance provider, and it was probably, like, one one one-hundredth of the process you just described. Yeah. Were you? Um, Okay. And what was yep. the timing to, to complete it and get everything? Uh, less than a week. Good God. <laughs> I, know people have, I know people have been in serious accidents where the car is a write-off and then they file the, the, the first off, the claims receivers are available 24 seven. 
So they're always ready. This whether it's home ownership, uh, home sorry, home insurance, or content insurance, or car insurance, they're always available. Um, and then I, I mean, I think within like two or three days, there was a check delivered for whatever the value of the car was. Wow. Um, that couldn't be driven anymore. I mean, that wasn't me, but uh, that's pretty good. And that's efficient. Uh, that's like market mechanisms. That's what you'd expect. And mind you, we're talking about a flight that did not take off, that nobody yes. was on, <laughs> that got canceled by the airline, that, you know, we're just trying to get the money back for that. It's not like a huge car accident where maybe you need photos, you need proof of X or Y. It's just like, hey, you didn't take this flight. Here's the insurance. Yeah, this is this is what uh, consumers around the country are dealing with. Uh, th that's why there are a lot of lawsuits that are being filed right now, and we'll definitely cover that mm -hmm. at, at some point more in depth. Um, there's going to be a lot of very good, legitimate lawsuits, a lot of bogus ones too, so we'll definitely be on the lookout for that uh, here on Consumer Choice Radio. I mean, another big thing we should talk about is how different the 4th of July is going to be for so many Americans uh, how different Canada Day was for so many Canadians, um, all the rules about gatherings. Uh, I mean, the two holidays are not that different in terms of what people usually do. Uh, usually involves, as we said, drinking beer, fireworks, barbecue, etc. cetera. Um, what's your take on, on how, how today is going to look, how July 4th is going to look for, Americans, uh, what could what could legislators maybe do to to try and bring back some of the fun? Oh yeah, that's a good question. How to? Well, I don't necessarily think uh, going to elected representatives for fun is the the number <laughs> the top of my list. But yeah, it's definitely something to kind of it's a, you know something to be sad about. I think a lot of people are missing out um, during this entire Carol Baskin's virus pandemic. Uh, a lot of people that you might know that might be having kids uh, that, you know, the dad is not allowed to be in the delivery room. You have different instances where people are not able to visit their grandparents. Um, basically, you can't have anybody over at your house. I mean, depending on where you live, that's insane. Uh, there's, you know, some stuff that people are doing and we're all living a Zoom life, I guess. But, you know, I think for people to just be able to use all the things they can have delivered to them, that's about all you can do right now. You know, have it all delivered to you. Have have your nice drinks, your good choice drinks. I've been trying yep. to do the same for the July 4th party that we'll have. Um, yep. I actually went out to the store. Um, I don't know if you would believe this, uh, but I actually went out and I bought American beer. Ooh, what in did Austria. you buy? So, we, again, there's not much choice here because <laughs> yeah. everything is, is uh, you have duties and, uh, you know, we don't have free trade, actually, between Europe and North America. Um, what we have is I definitely got some Miller Genuine Drafts. Okay. Champagne and of beers. Champagne of beers. And then I did get a bunch of Coors Lights Tall Boys. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Nice. I, was, okay. I was actually surprised they had the Tall Boys. It's a uh, American-British shop here in downtown um, so I picked up uh, at least like 15 of them. Nice, nice. Hey, on that note, um, when it comes to alcohol, I think one thing that should be done, it should be permanent, but I would do it, I would settle if it was temporary, is legalize outdoor drinking. Bas I know that sounds really weird for you because you're in Europe and pretty much everywhere in Europe you can drink outside anyway. Uh, but imagine being able to get like to go beers from your favorite restaurant um hang out in a parking lot in a park like all sorts of other options that are available to you um right now only patios are open in so many places which is like mm. really limited capacity but imagine if you could have people say oh, okay sorry the patio is full right now but you can buy beers from the bar buy margaritas from the bar and hang out, wait, or take them to go. Um, I think now's the time for North America to mature a little bit and uh, and implement what is largely accepted across Europe. Well, I think for my fellow rednecks uh, who might be listening, they're very familiar with the, the town of Panama City, Florida. Uh, yes. And this is a place with a huge boardwalk that is very well-known and famous for being able to drink out in public. And to actually be walk around, usually people have like these, 
like two foot tall, big slushies with all kinds of cocktail. I don't even yep. know what was in there. Uh, but I think you have to wear the wristband, um, if I remember correctly, in order to walk around. I okay. Mean, yeah, this is the kind of thing that definitely after years of living in Europe is, is just still so strange that we still have this Protestant mentality of wanting to restrict uh, public intoxication or public drinking. I mean, now if I want to go for a walk with my daughter, I put her in the stroller and, you know, if it happens to be past five o'clock, I might crack open a gold one and I might see a police, uh, police officer on the way and I might raise my beer to him and give him a cheers and he'll cheers right back. And that, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, is freedom. That is freedom. That is freedom. And the be- the crazy thing is, so I'll, I always, whenever I talk about this, I always get pushback. And people will be like, wow, you just want a bunch of drunken people walking around the streets? It's like, Hold They do that second. anyway. <laughs> One, it happens. Two, being uh, like public drunkenness is already a separate ticket. So there's a difference between being able to have a beer or two and completely overdoing it and being a danger to yourself and to other people. That's not legal whether you are allowed to drink outside or not. Um, so a lot of this debate gets bound up in what is really just a non sequitur. It doesn't matter if, if your concern is public drunkenness. Well, that's already illegal, guys. Yeah, the fathers against drunk driving will also join in your fight um, against yes. this. But definitely you bring up the patios. That's a great idea. Um, this kind of goes with urbanism, you know, in uh, larger city centers, you know, because there has been less traffic of people going to stores generally, less people driving. You have seen people uh, ease zoning restrictions and they've allowed a lot of outdoor venues that have, you know, whatever yeah. bars or restaurants to go out under the patio and be able to serve drinks and all the rest. Well, apparently we can't be indoors because of the restrictions, but let's serve some drinks outside. I mean, that's awesome. Um, definitely. Uh, places in the in the north of the country do that very well just because it's a mm-hmm. bit cooler out and you know you can actually go outside if you were to do that in north carolina or florida you just get eaten alive by the sun or mosquitoes in the summer yeah um, you need but, like the misters the the misters on the patio that spray oh, the yeah, water yeah. to keep you cool man i and that's the kind of stuff that i miss you know that's what i loved about going back outside is that you see all this great technology that these bars and restaurants put together so that people can actually eat their food out in the open and and it's actually a pleasant experience um, yeah. one thing that um i've uh seen it here in vienna that's really interesting i want to get your thoughts every household in the city of vienna received a 50 euro voucher to be used at restaurants. Ooh. This is a kind of temporary, uh, you know, stimulus package sure. for all consumers and, and restaurant tours as well. What do you think about that? I mean, it's interesting. Um, I'm not. I'm not the biggest fan of, of of just distributing taxpayers' money like that. However, if you're going to do that, I think that that is a much better way than trying to give it to businesses and picking winners and losers yeah. in the scenario you just described consumers pick the winners and losers which is the way it should always be uh, yes it's government money and you could have some objections to that but i think that that's a much better way to go about it because it gets you thinking okay well how, how do we want to spend our 50 euros uh do we want to do do we want it to chip away at the price of a very nice dinner are we going to use it over three or four small um, outings. I think you, you do have to use it in one sitting, um, oh, okay. which is why a lot of people are talking about, okay, we'll go out as a couple or you know two couples or something. We'll spend your voucher tonight, and then the next yes. day we'll use the other voucher. Smart. Uh, another thing that's popped up that's really interesting is, I guess, um, there was a case where a mailbox got pried open, and a lot of these things got kind of swiped, and there's been a secondary Ooh. market on our equivalent of Craigslist here, where a lot of these 50 euro vouchers have been showing up for about 20 to 30 euros. <laughs> oh, that's great. I just picture someone standing on the street corner and be like, yo, you need vouchers? I got some. Yo, you need some vouchers here, man? I'm scalping them cheap, 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 cheap. Tickets, tickets, tickets. Get your tickets. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I haven't used it yet. I Unfortunately, the first time we got the letter, I... I thought I had it in my pocket and then it actually went missing for a couple days so I um I was immediately scorned in this household that I lost it but it was found uh, eventually so okay haven't used it yet but I, I think we might do that over the weekend uh, there's a there's a couple good places that we might 
might try to patronize to support small business so they can bounce back from the terrible effects of the pandemic. It'd be it'd be interesting to hear for someone who is single out there what the role this voucher has on the dating scene. <laughs> hey, like baby, I, I got a voucher. Want, Swipe I, right on my voucher. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go out for a nice dinner? I got my voucher left. Get my one voucher. Well, that sounds good. A one voucher date. I think that's a, it's a good selling point. I'll definitely uh, recommend that to my single friends. You guys can put that in your bios and much more. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're going to have much more advice uh, on that and other topics, everything consumer related here on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the hour. We had an interview with uh, Bart Madden that was great about free to choose medicine. Uh, David and I covered a lot of the topics that we've been working on at Consumer Choice Center. And uh, essentially now it's time to go and we wish you all a, an amazing holiday weekend and enjoy July 4th. Yeah, have fun out there. Summertime.